another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spear here with another edition of the Survival Podcast It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times And the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always the case now from the home office. And I think I'm going to have a better show for you today, audio quality-wise. There's been a sharp pitchiness um, recently when I've been doing the show from home. And I've gone to every Audacity uh, forum out there. Audacity is the program I use to record on the computer. And I cannot find anything about sharp pitchiness that makes any sense uh, as to why I would have the problem. So today, before I was doing the show, I was trying to, like, I'm going to figure this out. And I uh, decided to check out the audio settings of the PC itself and right-clicked on a little speaker icon down in the task tray. And uh, there's a microphone setting to boost microphone audio in the advanced settings under microphone. I deselected it, and it seems like that has helped a lot. So it might be a little less loud, but maybe it will be a little bit more clear and less pitchy, and maybe you'll enjoy it more. Um, I can always raise the volume a little bit when I do the editing, if necessary. So we'll see if today's show comes out better. So I am striving to make things better now that I have time to think um, before I act when it comes to doing these shows. All right, so let's get on with the show today. Let's start out with, uh, first of all, I'm going to do another listener feedback show because I've got a lot of cool stuff I want to read from you guys. I can finally do that. I'm even going to bounce around to a couple people's blogs and, and check some stuff out with you guys today. The blogs I haven't even done yet. I'm going to be pausing and doing that on the fly uh, just to, to give you some new stuff, You know, some things I can do now that I'm home. Uh, before that, though, I want to let you know again, um, Thursday... Uh, it's actually the interview is going to be today, but Thursday I'm going to be airing an interview with Bill Wilson of Midwest Permaculture. So make sure you tune in Thursday for that. That promises to be a good uh, a good interview. I'm going to be interviewing him at 2:30 today. That means if you have a question for Bill Wilson, get it to me by email before I would say 1:30 today, or it's not going to be able for me to ask him. So email that with question for Bill Wilson to Jack at the Survival Podcast dot com. Uh, next up, our uh, sponsors of the day. Make sure you take care of our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day uh, number one today is Tactical Response Gear, James Yeager's operation. Great tactical equipment, reseller of one of our, another of our sponsors, SOE Tactical Gear. Uh, great training, great training DVDs. Check out Tactical Response Gear. Um, the next one is the uh, Lifesaver 4000 water bottle from ready-made resources check this product out filters down to 0.015 microns that means this product actually filters out viruses and bacteria making even bacterial or virally infected water safe to drink without having to boil it um, the inventor invented it after seeing the disaster caused by the tsunami in Indonesia and how many people went without clean water during that so that was what inspired that the product's inventor so check that product out and uh, not sponsor the day, but I want to, you know, once in a while highlight a product from one of our sponsors. So I'm going to start doing that. Um, it's not going to be an everyday thing, just once in a while. Basically, I'm going to highlight things when I buy it. Well, today I bought something, and I bought it from Safe Castle Royal. Um, it was called Future Essentials Freeze-Dried Soup, a, a case of 12 different soups that are freeze-dried. They come in a number 300 can. That's about, if you get a big can of crushed tomatoes, about that size. Um, so it's 12 different soups, uh, 12 cans, and it was $97 cost without a uh, Buyer's Club membership, 78 bucks with a Buyer's Club membership. Each can has 10 to 12 servings. 
uh, in it, even though they're small because it's completely dehydrated. Uh, that works out to roughly 100, call it 10, 120 servings. That's 65 cents per, you know, those little cans of soup, that would be about a serving, about 65 cents per can of soup, but it only takes up the space of 12 big cans versus 120 little cans. Good solid value, a seven year shelf life, and great variety. So check that product out on their site. I'll put a link in today's show notes. And, uh, I do want to tell you guys when I actually buy something. If you go to the forum, remember now on our forum, there is a, a area where you can talk directly to the vendors. And I bought this product after asking Vic Sun JC a few questions, including how many servings per can do we get? Cause it wasn't on the site. So I've advised them to add that information, but I just thought that was a great deal. Um, and I ordered two cases of it. So that is now uh, roughly, what, 240 servings of soup that is going to take up, you know, the area of two computer towers in my uh, in my storage. And that will be something I'll be willing to rotate maybe every three to four years. So I think that's a great deal. And uh, let's face it, when you come to freeze-drying something, soups pretty much come out the same way no matter how they're stored. Uh, so we know they'll be good eating. And I bet you that seven-year shelf life can be pushed. So I'll actually uh, open at least one can of that, do a review of it for you when I get it, but check out that product. Okay, next up, uh, join our forum, get involved, I'll leave it at that. One thing I want to point about our new forum, right? If you go to our forum, it looks totally different than maybe the last time you've seen it. About two weeks ago, it was upgraded by Sister Wolf. It looks awesome now, and what's cool is now from the forum... You can get to the member support brigade, you can get to the podcast, you can get to the gear shop. You can basically use the forum as your portal to the show. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, I do want you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, all that other good stuff. Join the MSB, I'll leave it at that. Other than I want to tell you, I finally got the deal done for the MSB members with Dave Duffy over at Backwoods Home. Here's the deal. Order a subscription of Backwoods Home. If you're an MSB member, you get a special code and a special page to order from. On that page, you'll see two books. One is called Can America Be Saved from Stupid People? And the other one is The Coming American Dictatorship. One is $15, one is $21. You take your pick. Either one of those books just for ordering a subscription to Backwoods Home. A subscription to Backwoods Home is not much more than that. So it's like buying the book and getting the subscription free if you prefer to look at it the other way around. I also have now a 50% discount available to MSB members from a website called self-sufficient-life.com with uh, 12 really awesome ebooks. I bought one of their ebooks. It cost me five bucks with the discount. Um, just saying, a lot of value being built there. Now let's go ahead and uh, get into some of your questions and some of your feedback. Um, I want to read this one first because I want you guys to realize. Uh, what survival podcast is really starting to do? How far we're starting to uh, to reach out? This comes from a guy named David. I won't give his last name uh, specifically due to maybe a little bit of a sensitive nature of where he's already located. But his name, he says, hello. Hello, Jack. David here, a loyal listener and brigade member, originally from the farmlands of southern New Jersey, a.k.a. ha ha ha, the garden state, so they dare say. And thanks to you, my wife and I this year will reside in rural western hills of North Carolina on a nice 5.2 acre location, which we will run, will turn into a paradise. At this time, I'm cur- currently in Kirkish, Iraq, in the epicenter of Al-Qaeda territory. I'm a civilian contractor, a project manager for an Iraqi-formed company who has been awarded many contracts from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to build new construction and or rebuild all that was destroyed here due to the war. 
I am only, I'm the only Caucasian male in the midst of 600 Iraqi workers in an isolated area in Dayala province where we look to the east uh, at the mountains of Iran with field glasses. We take turns watching the Iranians looking at us with their field glasses wondering what we will do next and who will attack or assault who first. Now the great thing and the purpose for my email is you and TSP, uh, which via satellite, uh, I listen to via satellite. I have an internet connection listening each day, and when there is no show, I go back to every podcast and listen to the archives. I listen to your message conceptually, ideally practical applications and wise. The mental awareness and focus truth and on truth prove your notable intelligence. Okay, he's telling me how great I am. You guys wanted to hear that. As you can imagine, being here is a hard life. Work is hard seven days a week, usually 12 to 14 hours a day. No days off, only occasionally a Muslim or Iraqi holiday. So in the midst of that, you and TSP keep me going. You and your message feeds my brain, which is desperate for cognitive nourishment each day. I've transferred my view of life thanks to you and your community. I've been a self-sufficiency backseat driver since I read my first issue of Mother Earth News when John and Jane Suttleworth put out their first issue in 1970. Um... Now I'm in a four-wheel drive moving towards self-sufficiency. My whole energy level has been raised, and my life is now absent of the suburban lethargy that has been my self-imposed disease of ignorance and lack of responsibility for my own direction in life. This guy's pretty deep. Um, Daily, I'm charged by your efforts. Now the interesting part. You have an Iraqi fan club audience now. When I listen to the podcast, I have about 22 or so Iraqi citizens sitting with me who understand enough English to appreciate your message. After the podcast, they ask questions, discuss the concepts and applications, and are absorbing your message as fast as they can listen to them. After we are done, they then spread the word to their Iraqi brethren and families. Uh, When they return home, they spread the word even further. They are now taking action to be more self-sufficient and empowering uh, than ever before. Jack, you have done something here that is helping to heal a very emotionally and psychologically damaged population in Iraq. You give them hope, strength, knowledge. The ability to look through and past the indoctrination of bad politics that has been their reality for two very sad generations now. And uh, I can't even read anymore. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's hard to read online. It's, uh, it's uh, too hard to read, folks. It's too hard to read, um, and uh, what I'll do, it's all posted in the uh, forum, a copy of it with any sensitive information removed and a little bit of uh, uh, maybe my personal sensationalism taken out of it, but I want you to realize the impact we're making, and uh, I mean, I can't really say much more. There's a couple of pictures of his men working, and I'll post those as well, um, but we're reaching out to parts of the world that I never envisioned. I mean, if you would have told me a year and a half ago or so when I started this that one day the message you're putting out in Survival Podcast will be well received by the Iraqi people who are rebuilding their country and, and help their efforts as much as it would help people here in the United States, um, I would have thought you were higher than Cooter Brown, drunk on uh, drunk on moonshine. Uh, this is one of the best uh, late Christmas presents I've ever received. So I thank you very much, um, uh, David, and I thank the uh, the Iraqi people who are listening to me, and I wish you well in your efforts to rebuild your country, and uh, thank you for being an inspiration. Uh, and with that, we're going to go on to something else because it is uh, it's a bit too deep for me to deal with on the air, honestly. So if I want something to stab me out of being a little bit emotional, um, let's go to something that will make me emotional in a different way. Let's go to something that will make me a little bit angry, something that you guys need to know about. 
this came to me uh, from a guy named Scott, Missouri. And it says, it's an article that says, This is your government. Your legal right to redeem your money market account has been denied. And it's an article from Zero Hedge. And what it's all about is uh, a new piece of proposed legislation um, that, if it goes through, will give money market managers the ability to deny your withdrawal uh, during another, um, let's say, collapse, like the last one we had. So if you know anything about stocks and investing, or if you don't, I'll help you here, um, most people that invest in stocks or want just maybe a better interest rate on cash put money into what's called a money market account. And that sits there and it bears interest, but it's considered cash. It's a lot like having a bank account. So it's money that you're supposed to be able to just get anytime you want. You don't have to wait for a stock to be sold or traded. Um, it's supposed to be as safe as it gets with an investment, um, as safe as it gets beyond a savings account at your local bank anyway. Well, what this new legislation would allow is during a time of panic for not really the government to do it, but for the individual money market account manager to suspend withdrawals until they can acquire the assets necessary to cover the spread. Now, why would they want to do that? Because they, even though you don't put your money into the market, they put your money into the market, supposedly in safer investments, so that they can pay you that 2% interest rate. They need to go out and get 5% on the money. So at so this is just like the old days when a banker would have a note for gold and they would put gold in the bank and they, but he would loan money to a guy to buy a house. So your gold may not actually be in the bank and it would be leveraged and maybe he'd go up to a ten to one leverage point. Well, of course we know these idiots with derivatives have gone up to a forty to one leverage point in the past. And what they're saying now is if we have another crisis, there's not enough cash out there. We might have to suspend the withdrawal of money market accounts. What does that mean? This is what it means for you. When you're looking at your assets, it doesn't mean you don't put any money into a money market ever again. It means you no longer consider that money to be readily accessible, safe money. And if you have a certain percentage of money that you want to keep available to yourself out of all your assets, that you do not include the portion that's in the money market is readily accessible anymore. So if you keep 10% available, 20%, whatever it is, whatever it is, it's not that anymore. This is just another reason, because banks will be next, guys. I'm telling you. Banks will be next. You can look at the, I'll put a link to this article in the show notes today. You can read it yourself. And you can see what this legislation does. And it's, it's just another way to screw over the population. And I don't want this for us. And I want us to have safety. And that's why I say, buy some silver, buy some gold, have it in hand, keep it stored, keep it safe, keep it locked up. Maybe you don't even keep it in your home. It's probably a good idea not to keep all of it directly in your home because it's a target for burglary. But keep it where you can go put your hands on it. And that's why you invest in other things like food and long-term storage food and a home. And you make a home that will produce for you, plant a garden. That's why you do these things, because those are the things that can't be so easily rendered useless by the stroke of a pen. This is why I'm so passionate, guys, because of nonsense like this. So let's, uh, let's look at something different now. Okay, I found a good article over at thesurvivalistblog.net. Again, thesurvivalistblog.net. And I'll link to this article from today's show notes. And I like this guy's blog. Uh, 
I like a lot of what he does over here. And this article is pretty cool. This was put out January 4th, so yesterday. And uh, I won't read the whole article or anything like that, but I'm going to go through his six reasons and give you a little bit of my thoughts on them. Uh, his first reason is overconfidence, and he says the overconfident effect is a bias in which someone's subjective confidence in their judgments and abilities is greater than their actual skill set or knowledge. Basically, you think you know more than you do, and you think you're more ready than you are. Now, what is the greatest way that I know to get past incompetence? Or overconfidence, incompetence. I don't know really how to help you there. Overconfidence. Um, overconfidence, I can help you with overconfidence pretty quick. Go out to your switch box on the side of your house, your electrical uh, box, and see there's a big giant breaker there that says main. Throw that sucker and go three days without it being on. That'll fix your overconfidence problem pretty daggone quick. Uh, in most instances, to have a little bit of time to prepare for this. You might not even have to do it. Just shut everything off in the house. Uh, turn the, uh, the heater all, you know, off. Turn the air conditioner off it's in summertime, but right now it's cold out. So turn the heater off. Sit there and think for a little bit about what you're gonna do next. Take the keys to your car, put them in a coffee can up on the shelf and pretend you can't use your car. You can't go anywhere. You know? That'll fix your overconfidence. The next one is procrastination. Um, I couldn't agree more with that one. Here's the thing. People procrastinate because they think the job is too big. It's too much work. It's too much effort. That's why we talk about doing things incrementally on the Survival Podcast. A little bit of extra food today, a little bit of work on the garden tomorrow, learning a new skill the next day, little tiny steps every day. And six months go by and you look back and go, holy crap, how far have I come? A little bit of extra money in the savings account today, couple coins, silver coins purchased next week, right? Pay a little bit of extra debt off today. A year later, I have no debt. I have a nice stockpile of food, a nice stockpile of silver. I have a garden that's producing food for me. And it gets easier as you go because you build momentum. Procrastination comes because you look at what everybody else has done and you think, I can't do all that. Little steps, one at a time. Inefficient use of resources. This is another thing, I, I, you know, and he's talking about the survivor who spends $10,000 on weapons and related gear. He does a two-week supply of survival food and no water filter. Good stuff, man. I mean, and, and that is key. Like I said, I'm for guns. I am for ammunition. I am for the ability to reload. I even talked about casting your own bullets yesterday. You may need to defend yourself. That is a reality. The worse the situation gets, the greater the need to defend yourself will be. You may also need to have the skill to use those tools to harvest food so that you can have something to feed yourself. But the reality is you can't eat bullets and you can't eat guns. And when you're starving, you'll trade your last box of 308 for some food. And that's a harsh reality. So make sure that you're using the resources that you have wisely. This includes spending wisely, saving wisely, but it also includes do you understand the value of everything you already own? I think a great project for people, we're coming up into winter time, you know, it's kind of some downtime, can't do a lot outside. This is a good time to inventory everything you own. And make a decision. Is this item useful? Yes. Put it in a place where it will maximize its usefulness. Is this item useless to me? Or do I have so much redundancy for that need that it could go somewhere else? Give it away or throw it away if no one will take it. 
and make more space. Space is a resource too. I talk to people, I've got a month's worth of food and I don't know where to put any more of it. And you go over to their house and they have a pile of junk in their garage that hasn't been unpacked for three moves. You gotta go through that stuff. Inventory everything you have. It does two things. It creates space. And the other thing that it does is it identifies things that you have available to you in emergency that you really weren't aware of. There's so many things sitting out in a shed or a garage or under a bed that have multi-uses. They were never bought for that intended purpose. But we've done shows before on, you know, uh, overlooked or unconventional survival items. How many of those items or similar items are laying in your shed or in your garage? Good time to organize, go through things, take an inventory, and make sure you're using a very efficient uh, use of the resources that you have. There's so many people in the world that have so much less than you do, but that would handle a disaster so much better because they make the most efficient use of the resources that they have. Failure to act, and he says it ties into procrastination. I almost say that they're, they're, those two are one and the same. This should be a, uh, maybe it's a, a five, uh, Five reasons you won't survive. Because failing to act in, in procrastination aren't really that much different to me. Um, there, There is... Uh, I, yeah, I'm going to let that one go. Because I think they're the same. The next one is lack of persistence. Most people start their survival preps at the utmost determination, desire to get things done. But they stop when they run into their first in, in, in obstacle. This is a lack of persistence. I completely agree. And I think it's one of those things that happens. And it's why we have the rule. Everything you do should improve your life even if nothing goes wrong. If you're following that rule, then becoming persistent becomes easy because every action that you take has a real-world today effect. So when we store food, it's not just we're storing food in case. We're storing food in a rotational fashion that actually allows us to spend less money a year at the grocery store. and gives us greater convenience because we don't have to run out when we're out of something. I don't know how many people, you know, you talk to me, I was going to make this, but then I would have had to go to the store to get some butter. I'm like, you're out of butter? I'm like, yeah, well, we only go to a grocery store once every two weeks. You're out of butter? I don't, I don't even comprehend being out of butter. I mean, it's a, it's a staple. It's a fat. It's good to cook with. It stores well. You need refrigeration, but come on. A couple pounds of butter in the refrigerator, and when, you know, you pull a box out, take the sticks out of it, you shift them over, you buy a new box. It, it goes without even thinking anymore. Hell, I can make a candle out of butter if I have to. There's just so much, and there, it's, it's calorically dense, so it can be used to make pemmican. Right, you can use it as a substitute for tallow to make pemmican. I, I don't understand being without that staple. Yet most people are without it because they don't understand the value of what it brings to you today. And what it brings to me today is when you know this doesn't happen anymore. But back when the kid was in school, he'd come home. I'm supposed to bring in 57 chocolate chip cookies tomorrow. Okay, we have everything we need to make those. Not that they're a survival food, but that's what I'm saying. It impacts today, not just tomorrow. And the last one I love, divided actions. Um, he says, many preppers run around like a chicken with its head cut off. Their actions are divided to the point where they never get anything done. And that's, again, why I like to break things down into small component parts. Work on one piece, get it done. We set a goal. This week I am going to clean out the shed and put in a raised bed for my garden next year. And that's what you do this week. You do that. You don't worry about anything else but that this week. 
And then next week is, I've got some extra cash, I'm going to beef up the pantry a little bit, you make a list, you go to the store, you get that food, you put it into your rotation, and then you fine-tune your rotation and your, your inventory control. Right? And that's what you do that week. And then next week you listen to the podcast and go, damn, Jack says I need a documentation package, contact information, evacuation routes, everything like that in every one of my vehicles. This week I'm making a documentation package. And you do that until you're done with it. Now, you might refine all of these things later, but you get them functional before you move on to something else. So this is a great article. I'm going to link to it today. Uh, great job by N- N- M.D. Creekmore, who, who runs this blog. Um, let's see what else I can dig out for you guys today. Here's a question that just came in um, almost while I'm doing the show. Uh, Hi, Jack. I love silver flatware and noticed my local coin guy was selling some for about the spot price of the metal weight. Do you think buying sterling silver flatware in dishes, if one enjoys such things, are a decent way to invest in silver? Thanks, Julie. And um, you know what? Here's how I feel about that. As long as you're guaranteed at the purity of the silver and you're not overpaying for the silver, yes. Um, I have a concern there. It's a good investment in the metal itself. It, it's, it's, silver is silver, whether it's in a big blob, a bar, a coin, or shaped like a plate, silver is silver. Um, you want to find out the purity of the sterling, and there's, you know, if it's true sterling, there's, there's, there's a recognized standard for true sterling of 0.925 or 92.5%. So it's more pure than, let's say, pre-1964 silver quarters, dimes, and, and things like that, which are 90% pure. So if you're paying about the same price per weight as you would for those coins, and it's real genuine sterling, which from a coin dealer, he's probably not going to lie to you because those guys rely on repeat customers, and you make sure that it's genuine sterling, I have no issues with it. The problem I have is it's not as recognizable by weight and divisible as coinage or bars. So if I have a one-ounce silver coin in a barter situation, it's pretty clear what I have. If I have a little silver dish, it's not as clear. It's still a silver investment. It just doesn't have maybe as, as, as – it's not as divisible, portable, and barterable. But remember, those things are for the worst case scenario. So as long as you augment that with a bit of silver that you can use, uh, from, from that standpoint. So you're not just, that's all your silver. I would be a little concerned. If it's, that's a big point, like half of your silver is in things like that and half of it is in coinage or bars or anything that's divisible, I would feel a little bit more comfortable with it. But I don't see anything wrong with the investment as a whole. And I think it's a great way sometimes to find good deals. We actually found an outstanding deal. We paid about half of uh, what the silver was worth for some sterling that was picked up at a Goodwill store. So it's a good thing to keep your eye out for because sometimes people that have it don't really realize the value of what they're selling. And I'm not for going out and bamboozling somebody out of something, but when they stick a price tag on it and stick it on a shelf and I can pick it up, look at it, examine it, make my assessment of what it's worth, walk up to a cash register with no haggling and buy it, I keep my mouth shut and buy it. Uh, so that's something I would keep an eye out for as well. Uh, let's see if I can find another question to answer. Um, this is an interesting question. It's kind of a deep one. Uh, the guy says, what are your thoughts on U.S. Supreme Court case, Wickard versus Filburn? Um, this took place in the middle of the Great Depression, and it was when FDR set a regulation that limited how much wheat farmers could produce based on the total acreage they had available. The objective was to limit wheat 
in the marketplace because it was going into a deflationary spiral and becoming almost worthless. Now, the other side of worthless wheat is overpriced wheat, right? Because if it becomes worthless, the farmers won't grow it. Once the farmers don't grow it, there comes a shortage. Once there's a shortage, there comes a panic, and now wheat prices skyrocket. Everybody jumps on the bandwagon. If the underlying problem is not fixed, the wheat price plummets again, and it does this up and down motion, and we go a year of feast and a year of famine, a year of feast, a year of famine. Now, the reality is, if people get the hell out of the way, markets always correct themselves. Always. Capitalism fixes stupidity fast. But, of course, in the middle of the New Deal, we were at the height of socialism, and we problem was actually, to me, created not by the Depression, but by FDR socialism. So what do socialists do? When socialists create a problem, they come up with a, a solution to the problem, uh, which involves more socialism. They never go, hey, we screwed this up, let's back off and get out of the way. They always say, oh, well, that's, see, that's capitalism again. We've got to fix capitalism by getting in the way. So they passed this law. Now, this one farmer, he, he was allocated like, I, I don't remember, I think it's like, let me pull up the wiki thing here, but I think it was like 11 acres of wheat he was allowed to grow, but he had 20 acres of land that he could grow wheat on. And uh, it doesn't really matter what the numbers are. I'll tell you whether I'm right or not uh, here in a second when this thing loads. Uh, but he was given an allowance. He exceeded the allowance. Now, here was the thing. He didn't sell his wheat to anybody. He was also a chicken farmer, and he used his wheat to feed his own chickens. And what he said was, since I'm not selling the wheat, I'm not involved in commerce, and this law does not apply to me. And he eventually went to the Supreme Court, and the man lost. And he was ordered to pay a fine and destroy his surplus of wheat. What they said is, by growing his own wheat and feeding his own chickens with his wheat, he was therefore not purchasing wheat, and therefore was continuing to, to affect the problem. So the question that's being asked to me is saying that basically the government has said that it has the right to regulate what we grow for ourselves in situations like this. And that's true, and it's bad, and it's also not as bad, I think, as some people would lead you to believe. Okay, this guy was permitted to grow 11 acres of wheat on a 20-acre farm. His other nine acres, he could have grown anything he had chosen to. If the fool would have grown amaranth, he could have gotten around the whole issue. He wanted to fight. This guy was a fighter, and he believed what was going on was wrong, and he did this to try to right a wrong. I would be on his side if he was still around today. He's deceased long ago, being as old a gentleman as he was. And if I was back there, I would have been cheering him on. But the smarter course of action to avoid any kind of confrontation would have been to grow another grain crop. And, of course, we've learned that growing 20 acres of wheat is probably not. Now, that doesn't take away the issue here. This has set a precedent, especially with farmers who are actually farming for commerce, right? Because he was selling his chickens, this was not, you know, Joe Grandpa with a two-acre lot with a little chicken house with ten chickens in it. These, this would have never affected him. Could it in the future? I guess the precedent's been set. It's something to watch. But it's the reason we have to stay vigilant. And whenever they start mucking around, I said mucking, okay, not the bad word, mucking around with um, with little producers, the little organic producers and things like that, even if it's not affecting us directly, we need to stand up for them. Because we do not need to allow any further encroachment. We need to ensure that we have the right and freedom to feed ourselves. 
That is the most intrinsic civil right a human being could ever have. The right to decide what you eat, where it comes from, and to produce it yourself if you so choose. So I'm not sitting around chattering my teeth worried about this issue. But it is something to keep an eye on as we move forward and things get harder. Um, especially people that are sitting on, I'd say, 10 acres or more, are going to become bigger targets of things like this potentially in the future. Might be another reason to either only grow or only look for maybe 5-acre spread or something like that, or it's another great reason if you buy 100 acres to leave 50 of it as natural forest, to plant 20 of it as food forest, and to be as diverse as you can with your plantings, practice as much permaculture as you as you can, so that somebody looking at it from the outside sees there's a guy with a little garden. And they don't even realize what the rest of that 100 acres is doing. They don't get it. It doesn't look like food to them. It looks like weeds and trees. Well, it is weeds and trees. They're just producing something edible. So those are my thoughts on that. That comes from Jason in Philly. And uh, let's see what else I can dig up for you. Okay, here's another uh, uh, good question. This comes from Eric. And Eric says, hey, have you heard of Dave Canterbury, the YouTube wilderness survival tracking and primitive weapons instructor? Uh, yes, I have. Dave and I are actually pretty good friends. Uh, he's going to be doing something this summer, and I don't know if it's going to fit into my schedule, but if it does, I'm going to actually be instructing at his event. Uh, he invented something called a sling bow, which is basically a way to modify a cheap, cheap wrist rocket slingshot to be able to fire arrows from it with enough power to take down small to medium game. He also has a sling bow fishing mod for it. He gives away all the information for free, and the parts required to build his mods are dirt cheap and available at Walmart. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this tool and its uh, applicability, I guess is what he's trying to spell there. Um, I think it's a great tool. Um, I told my friend Hal Dodd about it. He's a fishing guide here in uh, Arlington. And the first thing he did was run out and buy the stuff for it and, and build one. He, he thought it was pretty cool. He didn't get the uh, the extra power bands, though, and I think that's something that's necessary. Here's my thoughts on the Slingbow. I think I can increase the accuracy shooting with the Slingbow with a simple modification. Um, if you watch Dave shoot it, he shoots it the way they conventionally tell you to shoot a wrist rocket slingshot, cannon to the side and pulled way back almost to the ear. The reason you do that is to get a maximum extension of the rubber bands so that you get maximum thrust against the arrow. My thought is if I take the, the, the bands and remove maybe, let's say, an inch to an inch and a half from each side, and let's face it, the bands are like two bucks, so if it doesn't work, I'm not out much. Shorten the bands. I would then be able to draw straight back and anchor at the corner of my mouth like the way that I shoot a compound bow. And there's people that anchor under their chin, back at the ear, but I've always shot Apache style with the bow, and that's anchoring at the corner of the mouth. This gives you a straight alignment against your arrow. And for instinctive shooters, and I do shoot instinctively quite often, um, it actually, to me, is an extreme advantage. With the slingshot, or a sling bow in this case, it allows you a precise alignment of the band to the front of the uh, slingshot itself, creating a very solid vertical sight plane, and then all you have to worry about is your elevation, your rise or fall above the line of sight. And as you get used to it, I think it would be actually a more accurate way to shoot. So I'm going to try that. I will find the video on YouTube of Dave doing this. I'll post it today. Um, and for, for you, Eric, actually, if you like Dave, there's an older show that I did about, I'd say, four months ago maybe, or a little less, where Dave came on as a guest for an interview on the Survival Podcast. I'll 
post a link to that as well today. So good question. This is a great tool. And here's the cool thing Dave showed me out at Dirt Time last year that I thought was just awesome. What he did was take the arrow that he was going to use to shoot out of this thing, find its balance point, and cut it in half at the balance point doing it with the head on it, right? So if you're going to put a 100-grain broadhead on it, you need to find the balance point with the arrowhead on it, or this will not work. That's very, very important. He said the first time he did it, they did it without the arrowhead on. They found the balance point. They did this. They put the arrowhead on. Of course, the balance point was ruined. Cut the arrow in half. On each side of the half of the arrow, you can buy stuff if you make your own arrows that can be uh, you can thread in you know your broadhead or your field point with. Put one of those in each half of the arrow so that they'll butt up against each other. Get a small piece of all thread, roughly the, or exactly the same thread count and size as a broadhead or a field point has on it. Buy that at Home Depot; it's dirt cheap. Cut it to a fixed length. Screw it in one. So if it's a um, let's say it's an inch long piece, screw it a half inch into one side epoxy it in place so it stays fixed. Then your other arrow side, your back half, screws onto there. You make a takedown arrow. So with that, Dave is capable of taking four or five arrows and a sling bow and putting them inside a pack and having a very compact method of a survival tool. And he also showed us out at third time how this tool is actually advantageous over a bow for stalking in the woods. Because when you have a bow, you have this long uh, object sticking out of both sides of your hand that you have to funnel through the woods with. And especially with a knocked arrow, it becomes even more difficult. But with an arrow ready to go in the sling bow, it has almost no profile. All you have is the arrow sticking out to the front. It looked pretty cool. He says it's good to about 20 yards. And in Dave's own words, if you can't get within 15 yards of a deer, you don't deserve to shoot it anyway. Um, he's that kind of a traditional bow hunter, though. Uh, so I think it's a great tool. I think it's something that maybe everybody should... Uh, Take a crack at building one and learning how to use it. It certainly would extend your ability to handle survival situations. And, of course, once you have the sling bow built, even if you run out of arrows due to loss or damage, you can build your own arrows. And then here's the really good part. The, a slingshot, I've never seen a wrist rocket slingshot break. The only thing I've ever seen fail on them are the bands themselves and that's really cheap to have two or three extra sets laying around, and they take up no space. One caveat, if you're going to shoot a slingshot with a sling bow or anything, the way I described, anchoring at the corner of your mouth, you need eye protection. The reason they tell you not to do that is you're more likely, if the bands fail, to have them come back and snap you in the eye. So it's very important that you're wearing eye protection if you shoot that way. Let's move on to something else. Oh, before I move on, update on Dave Canterbury and what his progress is. I got an email from him on Friday last week, saying that this Saturday, so that would have been the Saturday, uh, you know, Saturday last weekend, they were beginning shooting in, I think it was Nova Scotia, and he ended with Burr, and I, I, you know, uh, for those that don't know, Dave has a new series that will be coming out on Discovery called Dual Survivor, it's going to be kind of like Survivor Man, or, or something like that, but it's going to be two different survivalists in the woods, and one is going to be kind of the military do-what-it-takes-to-survive type, and the other one's going to be kind of the leave-no-trace hippie type, that's not a right, right characterization of the other guy that's in this, but... 
that type of thing, or trying to leave no trace, be green, and Dave is the militant type that's just going to get it done. And we're going to compare the way that two people from two different vantage points handle the same survival situation. I think it'll be a cool show, and his shooting has begun, and uh, that's going to be cool, and I think it's going to be good for the survival industry to have uh, some new information out like that available to reach kind of more of the mass market. Uh, so good for Dave, and I hope you're keeping warm up there, man. Let's take another question. Uh, here's a cool question, and I'm not a B expert, so I'm just going to give you kind of an abbreviated answer to this. It says, Happy New Year, Jack. I was just listening to you mention bees. What are your thoughts on the top bar hive design? I came across the design while back, uh, while back and thought it seemed like an interesting concept. I've not, he- uh, if you've not heard of just Google top bar hive, regards, uh, Ben. Well, Ben, I think that the top bar hive is, is really, um, an innovation by taking a step backward, uh, as, as Jules Dervais would say, uh, progress by walking backwards. And uh, it's a very ancient technology. It's been around a long time. It was one of the original ways uh, that bees were kept in you know, boxed hives. Now, what's the big difference between a top bar hive and a conventional beehive? A conventional beehive, just to make it as simple as possible, is built on the concept of a square. Right? I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to. All of the bees are forced to build their honeycombs on squares. Now, why do we do this? Because we maximize the honey per hive by creating a greater surface area and forcing the bees to use it. But if we go anywhere in nature, a hollow log that bees have natively colonized, and we look at the shape of their honeycomb, they never build a square comb. They build a comb that starts wide at the top and becomes more narrow as it comes down and kind of rounds off at the bottom. A top bar hive gives the bees a perfect environment to do that. It's made in a box with the, with the edges on angle, and then the bars are just slats of wood that run across the top, and you give the bees some starter wax to work with on those bars, and you put them in there, and they start to go to work, and they build a naturally shaped honeycomb. So you get a little bit less production, but you get safer, happier, healthier bees that require less work and maintenance. So you can run three hives instead of two, get roughly the same amount of honey, do a lot less work, and have a lot more bees around to pollinate uh, things that are going on. Now, here's the big thing. They're less expensive to build. They're less expensive to buy. And they're very simple to build. And at minimum, you could buy one, use it as a pattern, and make your own from there on out. They do require a little bit more effort in certain things. If you go to YouTube and you look at some videos of top bar hives, if you watch a person with a standard square hive, when they pull a comb out, they pretty much open it up, pull a comb out. It comes straight out. There's never any danger that the comb is adhered to the sidewalls. Often, with a top bar hive, the comb will adhere a little bit to the sidewalls. If you break the comb, you damage it, um, and you disturb the bees, and the gentle, quiet honeybee becomes kind of angry and upset, and it's more difficult to be a beekeeper. So this guy on YouTube, I'll see if I can find this video, made this little tool, and what it does is it goes down inside, and it makes sure that if there's any place that the cone is adhered to the sidewalls, that uh, it kind of gently removes that adherence so that the cone can come out intact. So if you're harvesting honey, you get a better uh, harvest, and if you're just examining it and taking a look at your bees and seeing how their progress is going, you don't disturb them too much with that action. So I think top bar is the way forward, especially for small-time beekeepers, and I found something really interesting. I saw one of the permaculture videos. It might have been the Drylands permaculture one with uh, Bill Mollison, or it might have been the urban one in Africa. It was something in Africa with Bill Mollison. And this dude is standing there, this, this you know African guy, and they have a couple beehives, and they're all top bars. And they're like made out of scrap wood, just put together. 
And uh, Bill says, so are those killer bees? He says, well, they're not killing us. The African honeybee that we so fear here, these guys have them on top of our hives, and they don't seem to have any problem with them. I'm not advocating that at all. I just found it interesting, and, and uh, I wonder if there is something going on here that's made these bees more dangerous, or it's that they're dangerous when they're in swarm, and they're not so much dangerous when they're happy and they're in their little honeycomb. Uh, I, I really don't know. Or maybe these guys have been working with call because I know that you can get aggressive and non-aggressive bees. There are colonies uh, that are in, in, you know inherently aggressive or non-aggressive, and if you get your new queen spawn from a non-aggressive hive, you end up with non-aggressive. And over time, beekeepers work with these non-aggressive uh, strains, and over time you get very very uh, gentle bees whereas you can go the other way and i wonder if these guys have done that either way it was cool to see these guys working with something we fear so much and having absolutely no fear at all and uh, to see them using this design over there in africa and it's catching on down the u.s so if you're looking at bees it is something i suggest you consider it requires a little bit more specialized knowledge initially to make sure you know how to use it because it's not you know yank the cone out and be done with it, but I think once you know what you're doing, it's actually easier and less work, and it's certainly less expensive. So good question there from Ben. Thank you. Okay, here's one that's not a question. It's just a uh, an update from the Great North um, and another reason to prep. Hello, Jack. We live in Mon- Manitoba, Canada, just north of North Dakota. This Christmas, we were stormed in for several days. Now we're facing very low temperatures, and that old Arctic wind returns. Our road was covered with about five feet of snow. Each day, we removed several feet of snow from the driveway. It was a lot of work. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see all of our extended family. However, we made the best of being housebound and had no worries because of our food storage. We began our program a few months ago and already had a few ex- had an extra month of food on hand. By April, we are set for five to six months' worth of food. I want to encourage everyone to keep at it. Keep up with their personal preparedness efforts and enjoy the freedom it brings. For 2010, I'm becoming a MSB member, expanding our food storage, getting a gun license, because you're in Canada, I guess you have to, and launching a small business to improve our finances. I look forward to the new year with excitement and less worry because I have a plan and I'm going after it. Appreciate all that you and your family have done to inspire and motivate us. Your personal example of Bugging out is a great inspiration for me personally. Keep up the good work. I look forward to learning much more from you. All the best, Michael. Awesome. See, and it, again, there was no great, massive Hollywood disaster. What we have is a simple family living in a simple place, enjoying themselves, snowed in, unable to leave, unable to see their extended family, and having to make do with what they have. But having enough on hand to not just make do, but actually enjoy their holiday. So preparedness here didn't save lives so much as it made lives more comfortable, and it made what it would have been an uncomfortable experience actually enjoyable, and taught the family a lesson, and probably brought them closer together. So great, thanks for sharing that. Let's see what else I can do before I wrap up today. Okay, here's an interesting question. It's kind of personal to me. Uh, this is from Rich. Uh, Jack, I was wondering if one of the reasons you're so passionate about the food aspect of prepping, both storing and producing, is part of your Ukrainian heritage, and what happened between 1932-1933 when Joseph Stalin's policy forced collectivism and starved the Ukrainian people. I, I don't think that I ever heard much about that as a child. Um... My grandparents were the children 
of first-generation immigrants. And my family came here from the Ukraine around the time of the 1880s, somewhere in there. I'm not exactly sure. I've never been able to isolate exactly when they all got here. But my great-grandparents arrived in the 1880s. And my grandparents, uh, at least on one side, were from an arranged marriage. That's how old school, I guess, they were. And, they, they, you know, they stayed together until both of them died. So I guess it can work. Um, so they grew up in the United States from as long as they, in fact, they were born here, I think, uh, I think all of them were actually born here, and my my great grandparents came here when they were quite young. It was their parents that brought them here, especially on the one side that 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 set over there. All came in around the 1880s and kind of filtered the whole clan sort of filtered in up and through 1900. So by the time they were old enough to be schooling me on things in the 70s, right? Um, I really didn't hear much about the old country what I learned was the language I think a lot of it was brought through with the gardening the canning, the prepping but the honest answer there is that everybody in the area, whether they were Ukrainian heritage Lithuanian heritage Irish heritage, we had a little bit of Georginian and Hungarian and Romanian and some Polish and everybody did those things commonly and I would say by that point, none of them were really rooted in our heritage, they were really rooted in America's heritage by that time. That because they came to this country in the in in you know the late 1800s, and the, and my grandparents grew up in the very very early 1900s. Uh, my grandfather being old enough to be considered an old man during his service in World War II, for instance, um, they were more America. Uh, I think today that a lot of what we see around us and consider America, the, the traditional American values. So I'd say I'm passionate more because of traditional American values than because of my Ukrainian heritage. Because everybody had that garden and everybody had, you know, blackberries and rhubarb and permanent crops and apple trees and pear trees and things like that. And everybody shared. And I don't, re- and I remember a lot of people having some pride in their heritage. You know, we're Ukrainian, and God forbid you called my grandfather a Russian. He would have tore your head off if you called him a Russian. But it was a friendly pride. It wasn't a, a, an idealistic, nationalistic pride. It's, we're Americans from Ukraine. It was that kind of pride. And they went to a Ukrainian church, and they both still spoke Ukrainian, and they taught me just a few words, and they didn't ever really seem the need to teach me or even my father and his brothers a lot of Ukrainian. They needed enough to understand what the priest was saying at church during what they call the high mass. And if you didn't go to a high mass, the, the priest, even at the Ukrainian church, spoke uh, English. And they were Ukrainian Catholic, which is a very small sect of Catholicism. And uh, I think there's a lot of that Ukrainian heritage in me, and I appreciate it and I respect it, but I'd say most of the passion is good old-fashioned 1800s, early 1900s Americanism. And I think that's what my entire family uh, was really most proud of. So thought-provoking question, Richard. Hopefully it helped other people uh, to hear me muse a little bit there. 
Here's a good question from a fellow named Brian. Brian says, hey, I always enjoy the diversity of listener questions. Well, hopefully you'll like today's. Listening to your response to the caller questioning approach of his first firearm was helpful to me. I'm in a similar position myself. Be buying my first gun possibly before the new year. I decided to make my purchase of Remington 870 and rebuild my, and build my collection from there as he suggested. In the past, I've heard you compare the inflation of the dollar to that of silver, and I can't help but wonder what a similar comparison would look like done with the most common firearms. Is it out of line to think of my shotgun for that matter? Just about any tool is a hedge against inflation. I don't think it's out of line at all to see it as a hedge against inflation. I think it absolutely is a hedge against inflation. When you buy anything that lasts 50 years or more, it's a hedge against inflation. It's hard to say that buying an iPod is a hedge against inflation. It's a luxury purchase. I have one. I'm sitting here holding it, and you know, I'm kind of a, a, a Scrooge when it comes to spending money on things I don't need. So I'm holding an iPod Classic that I've had. I had this before I started the Survival Podcast, and I see no reason to upgrade. I know a lot of people want the iPod Touch, but, I mean, that's not going to last 50 years. 50 years from now, there won't be anything to plug an iPod Classic into. I, I can just about guarantee that. Uh, but your 870 shotgun, you take care of that, it'll last 100 years. So, of course, it's an inflationary hedge. I think it was Popular Mechanics, I recently read a magazine that had the, what they called the coming classics, the things you could still buy today that would be considered classics tomorrow. And the Remington 870 was one of the top ten things you could buy today that when they stop making it eventually will be an instant classic overnight and have uh, lasting intrinsic value. So I think that's a great way to look at any firearms purchase if you're buying a quality firearm and you take good care of it. And I think that's a good way, and you said any tools, of course. Um, a good socket set will outlast you. I guarantee you if you look at the price of a good socket set in 1970 uh, versus uh, 2010, you might have done better than if you had bought gold or bought into the stock market on a rate of return. In fact, I would bet that you had. I would bet that you had. Now, if you compare a good quality American-made Craftsman socket set uh, from 1970, which was American-made, or Snap-on or something like that, to a cheap Taiwanese set made today where you can easily snap sockets, I don't think you're, you're, you're going to work out anywhere near as well. But if you buy the same quality of goods, you know, you deal with a company today like Snap-on, um, you're going to see that you've done quite well with that inflationary hedge. And uh, I think we should look at things like that in all of our purchases. And that's what I'm talking about when I say maximize the diversity of your investments. It's not about just mutual funds and having three different classes of funds or some nonsense like that. Buy things you can build with. Buy things that provide for you. Buy things that will last. You know, we are now entering the greatest era of what's called planned obsolescence in the history of humanity. And that is where manufacturers build things with a knowledge of how long they're going to last as part of the engineering process. We're building this product to last no more than five years. We want an average lifespan of four years, a maximum lifespan of seven. And we want a lot of people encouraged to upgrade in three so that we can sell them another product. That has become a business tactic, where the business tactic used to be, I'm going to build the best damn thing I can. When you buy from me, it'll be the one time you buy this product for the rest of your life unless you want to. That was the American way. The new global way, if part of the American way, is building things that break. So I think we should be out looking for things that don't break. And I'll tell you one thing about Remington 870 shotguns. You may occasionally have to replace a, you know, a component, but they don't break as in not work anymore. Um, 
I've got a pretty dadgone old one, and I've seen them from the 50s that still work just as good. And the same can be said of a lot of them that aren't made anymore, that you can still pick up for very good deals on the used market. Winchester Model 12s, Mossberg, uh, uh, was it Mossberg Model 25s, I think, was, was one of the older uh, Mossbergs, the older Ithacas. I don't think Ithacas in business anymore. The old Ithaca shotguns, there's still a lot of them out there for under 300 bucks. Some of those things are 80 years old, and they work as good as the day they came out of the box. So you bet. Now, I think it'd be interesting one day. I didn't have the time to do it today. But one day, maybe I'll do the research. I'll go look up seven uh, classic firearms that are still available. And I'm going to look at their price in 1964, which was the year we stopped. You know, we stopped putting uh, silver in our coins. And the, what their price is, let's say, today. And see what your ROI is if you had purchased that firearm in 1964 and just put some oil on it and kept it in a gun cabinet. I think that's where I'm going to wrap up today. So I hope you're enjoying the the, the new uh, the new survival podcast. Uh, I'm going to get back into some main topics soon. I'll be uh, getting ready to do another series on medicinal plants uh, early next week and, and, and completing that series now that I have the time. Uh, I'm going to have a show for you tomorrow that's going to not be feedback. It's going to be on an individual subject. Remember what we're going to have then. Um, Thursday, you're going to have the interview with Bill Wilson. And uh, Friday, I've already recorded Friday's show, so the audio quality won't have this the, the pitchiness taken out like I hope it does today. Uh, but Friday's show is going to be uh, call-in Friday. And I'm going to try to do that maybe not every Friday, but many Fridays from now on. So it's a whole bunch of listener calls that I had to the 800 number, which, again, is 866-65-THINK if you want to call your question in. Um, so that Friday is already done with nine great calls from listeners, and I have a huge backlog of those because they were tough to do on the road. So we'll be doing those going forward. So rest of the week, you got a topic tomorrow. You have to tune in to see what it is. I'm not going to tell you today. you got a Bill Wilson from Midwest Permaculture interview on Thursday, and you got a call in Friday with your calls and my feedback on them. And with that, I'm going to wrap up. Thanks for listening to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for sharing my message. Above all, make sure you're taking care of you and your family and the loved ones around you. And make sure that no matter what I tell you you should do, you take the things that work for you, you put them together, you write your own plan, and you follow your own plan. If you follow my plan, it will not work for you. Because just like that article we read today, when you hit adversity, you will lose persistence. If you write your own plan, if you own it, if you know why it's going to impact your life, if you know why it's going to make your life better today because you do it now, you will stay persistent, you will stay true to your own plan because it's yours, because you own it, and because you realize what's at stake. A better life today and insurance if things go wrong tomorrow. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.